This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And with brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Scriabin's Mysterium. Intelligence Legwork. Daddy Issues. And Edward the Not-Quite-So-Exiled. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a book. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. But that's not Peter Frampton. It's a different young, tousle-haired pop star. It's Alexander Scriabin, Robin. And he's not coming alive, or if he is, he's coming alive very briefly before dying suddenly and mysteriously. And uh, I believe that the miniatures go blue and the Doritos go yellow because we're talking Alexander Scriabin thanks to a request from beloved Patreon backer Brad McLean, who wants to know how would you combine Scriabin's Mysterium and Hagia Sophia in Trail of Cthulhu? What would be the Canon Robin brand seasoning you'd put into it to make it amazing? And uh, I guess I could mention that I've already put Scriabin into Trail of Cthulhu. Uh, his alleged 13th Sonata is one of the mysterious tomes in that August volume. But I suppose Brad McLean is not satisfied with one paragraph written in 2007 and would prefer us to go on at length. What do you think, Robin? Yes, and, and other listeners might want to know a little bit about Scriabin before we launch in. They may well. So Scriabin, uh, Alexander Scriabin, lived from 1872 to 1915. If you listen to his music, which is mostly expressed through piano sonatas, uh, you might think that it's much later, but that's in fact because he influenced an entire generation of modernists, including particularly the Russian modernists. So uh, Shostakovich, uh, Stravinsky, Prokofiev to a lesser degree. Um, and so it's, uh, spiky. It's still melodic. And, uh, like, uh, Schoenberg does a little later, he devises his entirely new different tonal scale and one that is influenced, uh, by can be a cult by theosophy somehow and also by synesthesia. So we we're talking a lot about colors and music lately. And so he, he didn't have a clavelux. Uh, but he was uh, uh, trying to uh, experience music in both color terms and, as we're about to get to in a moment, in transcendental terms. He is trying to bring about 
a supernatural or mystical inbreak that changes the world. And today, if you want to listen to it, he sort of uh, was a big deal in his time. And then those later figures kind of eclipsed him. And then more recently, there's been a, a resurgence in interest in Scriabin. For many decades, the only major classical player who was keeping Scriabin in people's minds was Vladimir Horowitz. Uh, it is uh, his recordings of Scriabin, which have a, a sort of a rhythmic drive, uh, which Horowitz gave to uh, all of his uh, playing, that makes it, I think, more comprehensible to the uh, uninitiated uh, uh, listener. Um, so he was a theosophist, Ken, and what would that mean for his uh, occult leanings, and how would that help him wind up in your Trail of Cthulhu Korbach? Okay, there is a uh, big circle of theosophists in Russia right before the revolution. There are any number of artistic movements that are attempting with greater or lesser success to ape various trends in uh, Western Europe, and theosophy is big uh, in Western Europe in, in the arts, but also it draws on sort of the native Russian tendency towards mysticism and towards expressing art as a mystical understanding of the world. And you get that in the novels of Tolstoy, you get it in Russian poetry, and you absolutely get it in Russian music. Even the most you know, faultlessly normal classical Russians also uh, had a, a mystical uh, aspect uh, to, to their musical uh, creations and Scriabin more than most, because Scriabin, as uh, we mentioned, has been associated with synesthesia. Now, modern day jerkballs will write books and say Scriabin was a philosophical synesthete, that he didn't actually experience neurological switcheroos that caused you to see sound as color that he sort of believed himself into it uh, over the course of his life of studying uh, theosophy. Uh, regardless, in 1907, he did seem to have some sort of nervous breakdown that resulted in a much stronger synesthetic influence on his art, whether that be, you know, a, a neurological effect or a renewed commitment to the theosophical mysticism. And uh, specifically, because chords progress, and because Pythagoras started us all off with the music of the spheres, and how various sounds carry mystical meaning, uh, you can take a notion of the theosophical progression of the world uh, through its various root races into music. And by your music, you can accelerate, uh, emphasize, recapitulate theosophical progressions. And so once you're going through that ritual attitude, why not go through them all? Uh, he begins sort of as a uh, throat clear for the Mysterium with a work called Prometheus, the Poem of Fire, in which he does, in fact, have a part for not a clavelux, because the clavelux doesn't exist yet, it being 1910, but for a different kind of color organ, a clavier a lumiere, that was designed specifically to perform Prometheus. And it is right around the 1907 breakthrough that he also begins to, on his musical scores, write what sort of magical energy or mystical energy uh, you are intended to put into the piece. So by Prometheus, you have an interplay between the feminine wisdom and male wisdom. And Prometheus is, a, is intended to be an interplay of those parts that emerge in the Prometheus, in the, in the, in the new man. And so the female wisdom, or as it is known uh, in Greek, the Hagia Sophia, 
uh, obviously, uh, is a central concept, not just of theosophy, but of Gnosticism, the notion that the wisdom has uh, been expressed by God. It has fallen through the corrupt, increasingly corrupt universe, gathering contamination as it falls and has hit the earth, usually in the most abject female form imaginable, that of a sacred prostitute. And uh, this is Gnosticism's misogyny coming roaring out. But the notion is you seek out this female wisdom, and it is implied that doing so is a sacrifice to your uh, Gnostic purity. Uh, but once you have found it, you can join with it and regain the knowledge of the creation. And so uh, at this point, Scrabbin is writing things like, play this music as though it fell from the Pleroma, and the Pleroma being the mystical exudations of the creation. Um, so he's he's getting ever more mystical as his career goes on. Right. And the trombone player is showing up. He goes, is, is the poem a flat or is it sharp? <laughs> Help me out here. And Scriabin says, it's green. What is wrong with you? It's green. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Scriabin and uh, Rachmaninoff used to get into fights over what color various notes were. And Rachmaninoff would say, no, no, no. It's uh, reddish purple, not regular purple. And um, uh, Rimsky-Korsakov would say, you are both crazy people. And then <laughs> Scriabin would enjoy pointing out pieces in Rimsky-Korsakov where, for example, they open a treasure chest and sure enough, it's in the key of D, which is the color of gold. So, haha, take that, Rimsky-Korsakov. So anyway, great fun is being had and Scriabin is going... I think the uh, musical term is around the bend and towards the end of his life in 1913, he begins work on something called the Mysterium, which is a gigantic performance. It is uh, intended for all the arts. It is uh, intended to be not just a week long uh, symphonic collection of pieces, but it will also every spectator will have to take a part um, as Scriabin says, all will participate. The work requires special people, special artists, and a completely new culture. The cast includes an orchestra, a mixed choir, an instrument with visual effects. That would be our buddy, the Clavelox, dancers, a procession, incense, and rhythmic textural articulation. So people will be chanting uh, in the course of the thing of the uh, performance. The cathedral will not be of one single type of stone, the cathedral where it is being played, but will continuously change with the atmosphere and motion of the mysterium done with the aid of mists and lights, which will modify the building. And um, uh, he intended the performance uh, to be somewhere in the foothills of the Himalayas, I'm not sure where he thought he was going to get a cathedral in the foothills of the Himalayas. My understanding is there are a, a little... number of logistical problems are, are coming to mind. And th but fortunately, at the end of the performance, the world would be remade entirely. And uh, who doesn't want that? So you don't have to pay the bills. That's a key thing to a big extravagant production in the middle of nowhere with, right. with no audience. You get to stiff the contractors. Yes, it, it, it was it was the fire festival of La Letra, I guess. And, and, and it should be said that this... Armageddon that he wanted to provoke was not your negative Armageddon. It's your, your old fashioned apocalypse of, which is supposed to be a positive inbreak, right? A, a new transformative uh, utopia uh, will be created. And yes. as we all know, the only thing needed to fix the entire world is art. Right. As it has done so w well and beautifully before. Uh, the, the notion, I think, and this is where my musicology and my Russian depart me. I think the notion of the Mysterium is that the piece would accelerate through the various tones, recapitulating uh, the universe, 
then recapitulating mankind, and then the final bit is meant to accelerate the Kali Yuga to the point that we restart the universe at its purest and best point. Because, of course, theosophy, uh, since it borrows heavily from Vedic proto-Hinduism, believes that the world is in a series of, of great cosmic cycles and that we are stuck in the uh, what do I want to say, Robin? The 2020 of those cycles, the, the worst of those cycles. And, uh, that the Kali Yuga has to sort of be gotten through by means, uh, according to theosophy of various enlightened root races carrying the yeah. wisdom forward. They're known in Hindu mysticism as the dumpster fire. Era. The dumpster fire Yuga. Exactly. It's, and it's got fire. It's got iron. Right. What more do you want? Truly the Brahmins were ahead of their time. But the notion is that you would accelerate all the way through the Kali Yuga by means of the mysterium and then restart the world at the, at the top, at the that the new Yuga, the best new Yuga and, and Brahma, you know, ticks over for another 50th of a second or whatever it is. And, uh, and the world restarts. And that's, I think what Scriabin thought we don't know because he never finished the Mysterium. He was working on it from 1903. Then he accelerated on it after his inbreak in 07. He really began pounding it away after he wrote Prometheus. I think Prometheus sort of in most musicologists, opinion gave him what he thought of as was going to be the structure of Mysterium. But uh, he died in 1915 of a pimple on his mouth. He developed a pimple on his mouth and within a week it had blown up and killed him. And nobody knows what that was. Uh, they did not do a talk screen on Scriabin to find out what happened to him, but uh, he just died at age 43. Boom. That was him. Antibiotics. They're, it's good to live in the era that has antibiotics. It is good. Uh, one of his uh, piano sonatas is called the Black Mass Piano Sonata. He had another one called the White Mass Piano Sonata. Stodgier musicians condemned Scriabin not just for his modernism, but for his quote-unquote evil, by which I suppose they mean theosophy and habit of uh, dying of mysterious pimples after writing the Black Mass Sonata. But, uh, he was, he was very much a flashpoint in musical culture after he died. He was hugely popular in Russia. And then once it was, uh, once Stalin enforced, uh, socialist realism on everybody, uh, he became hugely unpopular in Russia. And anti-communist modernists in the West are basically who kept Scriabin's reputation alive. Although, as you say now, it is sort of blown back up and, uh, he is regularly performed to a degree that, um, a lot of his contemporaries, it turns out, are not. And so uh, when it comes to turning this, uh, well, I guess before we move on, we should note that uh, someone did complete this, a composer named Alexander Nemkin. Uh, so you, there is a recording and you can find other little bits and pieces that will give you the uh, feel of things. And so uh, particularly with the choral elements, the reconstructed parts of the Mysterium that we have uh, do uh, you know, sound like they belong in the soundtrack and you could blast them on Spotify. Um, and so the obvious thing, of course, is to do what you do with any uh, ritual activity in a Trail of Cthulhu game and have that be the big ritual at the end of the scenario that you have to somehow interrupt. And, uh, you know, if you can just get it a little bit wrong, if you can flash a blue light when the light on the cathedral is supposed to be red, uh, that's one thing. So that's the obvious way to go. Part of that could be thwarting the dreamlands activity that's supposed to bring a cathedral from diathlene in order to park it at the bottom of the Himalayas, because if you pointed out, uh, it has no native cathedrals to begin with. But I think it might be interesting to start 
a campaign with the characters all attending this performance in the Himalayas. And uh, they then uh, go back to Miskatonic University and things start to uh, reveal themselves to have changed so that this could be uh, one of those sort of reality breaks where, uh, you know, of course, it's Krayla Cthulhu, you know, that Yarlathotep and Azazoth and company, perhaps some infernal flotists uh, show up to orbit around and they, they mess with it. And this may be the uh, moment by which the uh, uh, old ones uh, retroactively reinsert themselves into history so that there's uh, no one remembers anything about them until uh, the performance. And then after that, uh, things start to crop up. And then after a while, they begin to appear in the historical record and in uh, books that you know that you've read and didn't have any reference whatsoever to Zithagua in them. Now suddenly there's a whole chapter on Zithagua. And so that the anti-temporal uh, movement, it's not that the world is suddenly different after the musical ritual, but rather it has always been different because of the musical ritual, which was then uh, inevitable. And the question then becomes, what are you going to do about it? Right. Um, that you are present in the uh, post-ritual universe. It's obviously can also, you know, as I believe we've discussed previously, in Ray of the Clavelux, you can just have Scraven have a big old thing in the key of D that's uh, bright yellow, and it opens the the, the way to Carcosa. I, there in the foothills of the Himalayas, obviously, the, the big bleed through sounds like it's going to be Lang. And you can have a game in which you're attempting to play whack-a-mole with the pieces of reality that are breaking through as, as Lang suddenly shows up on the maps and in the history books. Or you can be attempting some sort of deritualization. So you have to dig into the Necronomicon and all of the other works and try to find a, um, uh, a brilliant modernist composer of your own, uh, or maybe, you know, Walt Disney, another guy who's all about sound, music, image, light, shadow, and, uh, and, and, and strange voices, uh, working together. You, you find some other transcendent genius artist and you convince them to unmake the new world with a great uh, performance of their own. And that this becomes, uh, your attempt to, uh, shuffle reality back into a world where instead of, uh, conducting the Mysterium successfully, um, uh, in 1918, uh, or 1920, maybe with a bunch of white Russians using all of their treasure to do it. He died of a mysterious abscess in 1915, the way that he was supposed to. And Lang goes back to not being on the maps. And the obvious tension then becomes, what if there's pieces of this new world that you don't want to lose? What if in the old world, you come upon proof that you were in an insane asylum or that you uh, were never married with a, a darling son? And if you have to, you know, you're, you're like, oh, well, I wrote my graduate thesis on Lang. What if I don't have tenure in the new world? Whatever it is, the stakes in, uh, the, the, the flawed and corrupt and doomed present are possibly the kind of thing that would prevent you from taking the risk and, uh, making the world anew. Not that that is something with any thematic relevance in the world today, but there we have it. And, uh, you could do a little mini campaign where, you are uh, a, a team of uh, mystical enforcers of musicology and your predecessors successfully prevented the Mysterium. But uh, the ideas in Scriabin's music, of course, uh, percolate on uh, without him. So it may be that your job is to prevent the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky from premiering in Paris or at least preventing the parts 
uh, with the uh, infernal tootling flautus. And so you could, uh, as a big epical event in uh, 20th century culture, and you can keep going on. It's like, well, what about this um, strange version of uh, uh, rock and roll that Iggy and the Stooges are uh, working on with these uh, bizarre harmonics in them that are, are in fact, uh, highly influenced uh, by uh, avant-garde post uh, modernist composers and Harry Parch. It's like, so you have to make sure that you engineer the, the spiral of Iggy and the Stooges that knocks their band out of contention for a long time in the early 70s. And, oh, wait, we're flash forwarding in time. And it's like, oh, what about this 90s drum and bass sound that has this terrible color synesthesia that it's beginning to evoke in people so that you could do a, uh, a whole series of, uh, you know, greatest hits of uh, avant-garde and uh, modernist uh, music and find a different way to uh, uh, just perhaps, you know, one has Bayaki in him, the other has uh, Deep Ones, whatever it is, uh, to have a little mini campaign all centered around uh, not just the Mysterium, but all of its various uh, modernist tentacles that to go down through musical history. Yeah, and if you're looking for another uh, reality break, Scriabin's youngest son, Julian, is uh, one of those uh, child prodigies, uh, was an amazing pianist, uh, wrote uh, preludes in his father's style. Uh, so maybe uh, when Scriabin dies in 1915, his soul transmigrates into his son, thanks to his theosophical learning. And uh, his son dies, also mysteriously, uh, drowns in 1919 at the age of 11. And so there's another possible break point is when you are digging through the, the, the records of the Prometheus, you notice that it was, um, or not the Prometheus, the Mysterium, you notice that it was composed uh, or conducted by Julian Scriabin. Maybe our Scriabin still dies, but Julian grows up uh, to be a famous world renowned sort of Damien Thorne musical prodigy, uh, type fellow. And, uh, it is him that, uh, you have to undo the work of, but he's, he's just a kid. He's not actually evil. He's not the Antichrist. He's just a vessel for this power that his father built up musically over his whole life that killed his father was dumped into him. And so you have to sort of figure out how to, um, uh, undo that, uh, not. I will also point out that, um, Scrabin's daughter, uh, became a World War II resistance fighter. So if you're taking your game deeper into the 30s, into World War II, or if you want to tie it into, as you said, a Dreamhounds game, that later Dreamhounds war game, uh, his daughter Adriana Scriabina uh, is a major uh, resistance fighter and uh, was killed in 1944 by the uh, Vichy uh, militia. Uh, but her own daughter then became a... Uh, a freedom fighter in Israel. So there's something in that Scriabin bloodline that does not like to leave stuff alone. I'll tell you that. Well, before this segment becomes longer than uh, his imagined composition, it's time for us to uh, close up shop here in the gaming hut and see what other hut waits for us on the other side of this exciting commercial message. Oh, British intelligence, you just keep making terrible mistakes. In 1893, a spymaster from British naval intelligence tried to recruit the ultimate asset, 
Dracula. What happened? Biting. Oh, so much biting. But then they terminated him. Except they didn't. When the Cold War came along, what did MI6 do? Uh, they recruited Dracula. What happened? More biting. Oh, so much more biting. And then when the global war on terror arrived? Recruitment, Dracula... Biting. Well, the British government has surely run out of mistakes, then. If that's so, how did the spectacular Knights Black Agents campaign that documents it all wind up in the bundle of holding again? You don't mean the Dracula dossier? Unthinkably, yes. Dracula dossier by you, which is to say Kenneth Height and Gareth Ryder Hanrahan? Alas, yes. For a terrifyingly low 1995, you get the core Knights Black Agents rulebook, plus Dracula Unredacted and the Edom Field Manual. But Dracula Unredacted is the ultimate handout. Bram Stoker's Dracula with all the tradecraft secrets put back in. Not only that, but if you match the threshold price, the ever-mysterious price that just keeps ticking up, you get the entire Dracula dossier line. The Dracula dossier director's handbook and deck. The Edom Files. The Hawkins Papers. The Thrill of Dracula. The Van Helsing Letter. If you haven't got it, get it at the Bundle of Holding before Monday, November 2nd. And if you have got it, tell your friends to get it. At BundleofHolding.com presents Dracula. Dossier 2020. So, so much biting. The retinal scan that you had to undergo before listening to this segment, not to mention the extensive background check, lets you know that once again, you are standing in the top secret confines of the Tradecraft Hut. This time around, beloved Patreon backer Daniel Gill uh, wants to know about intelligence gathering boring stuff. Uh, what about the curious moments in history when intelligence agencies' highest priority is gathering otherwise benign information like population data and public health statistics? And he points to uh, an article about how the CIA was hunting for authentic virus totals in China uh, and dismissing the government tallies. And uh, that brings up the whole other issue of the hot mess that is currently the uh, United States intelligence uh, apparatus. <laughs> but I think the challenge, we're not going to try and make this interesting but the i guess the challenge here is to make the the uninteresting the routine interesting or to see how long you can spin out the routine parts of things until you have to have something uh, fun and espionage uh, happen so of course can the vast majority of work that intelligence analysts do is not about uh, gathering uh, secret information but about sorting the needles from the haystack of sifting all of the vast, the, the vast avalanche of what they call OSINT, open source intelligence, not open source like open source code, but open source meaning freely published. No one cares if you know it. And that is what most intelligence agencies have done, at least in the last century and a half. The American intelligence apparatus, which you rightly uh, mock and condemn, uh, begins in 19... 19- arguably begins in uh, 1918 when uh, Colonel House, uh, Woodrow Wilson's advisor, assembles a group of scholars to explain Europe and Asia to him because suddenly we are the guys at the Treaty of Versailles making all the rules. And he doesn't know what Kurdistan is. He needs a guy who knows what Kurdistan is. Get me the top man on Kurdistan, he says. Um, and then having successfully ensured the peace for all time at Versailles. Uh, we have to do it again. And the OSS, a big, huge part of the OSS is uh, what they call research and information or research and intelligence. And it's run by a Harvard historian named William Langer, whose job again is just to say, oh, you'll probably want to talk to that guy. According to this uh, scholarly paper, 
he didn't like fascism. Probably he'll, um, uh, he'll help you out. And that level of knowing the obvious is been the job of, uh, intelligence agencies worldwide. Obviously, again, um, so much of, uh, they, they've, they've declassified, uh, the political office papers in India. They haven't declassified MI6 papers going back to, uh, World War One. But the political office, which ran a ton of British intelligence overseas, uh, so much of that again was just, Hey, go to this area of, of, of Asia and write down who runs everything and send it back to us in a note because we literally have no idea. And it's the equivalent now of the information that gets passed back through the State Department's uh, research and analysis uh, units uh, that are, again, their job is to sort of sift very, very available information and boil it down into a usable product for decision makers. And when you are talking about things like China's public health information, you're in a weird overlap area because China publishes those figures just like the UN wants them to. You can see them just written out there in black and white. Those figures are, of course, a tissue of lies, like every communist government's uh, information briefings and like a non-trivial number of Western government's uh, information uh, publications. And so you have to dig into them just beginning with the sort of skepticism that a, uh, let's say, an epidemiologist would apply to those numbers if they did not track with reality. But the problem is that finding the real number suddenly does become a matter of digging around in things that at the very least, nobody wants you to know going all the way down to the, you know, uh, uh, communist party apparatchik who runs the hospital in Wuhan, who says, oh, no, that number is way too big. We're not going to show the governor that number. And uh, that, of course, propagates upward. And the Soviet Union famously uh, had to. Uh, create its own divisions of the KGB. Gorbachev basically had to set up his own unit of the KGB to find Western information and give it to him unmediated so that he wasn't looking at KGB versions of open source intelligence, because that's the other side of it is if you see something overseas and you say, well, that does not comport with our, uh, our desires politically, let's just change it. And that's how in America you get, for example, the notion that Ahmad Shalabi has any support whatsoever in Iraq to pick a thing at complete random. <laughs> right. his, his career was openly sourced and Dobin wanted to read about it. Right. And, and this comes to the, the other uh, huge fly in the o- ointment of intelligence is that you can have all sorts of correct information, but are the people whose decisions you're trying to anticipate have that correct information? Did they get given incorrect information by their uh, inferiors who would otherwise have been punished for telling the truth? Did they get the correct information but dismiss it because it's not what they wanted to hear? And so the the real black box of any intelligence thing is to figure out what your adversaries are thinking. But often the question is then, well, are they thinking? (laughs) Are they well-informed? Do they know what they're doing? Can we predict uh, what it is that they will doing? And and, uh, are all human motivations ultimately opaque and impossible to uh, uh, figure out uh, but at least we've got this nice chart that we can show uh, to uh, our, our chief. If we have someone who likes briefings and, and wants right. to uh, read them. Uh, and the next question, I guess, is uh, can we turn this into a call for chart with three bullet points? Oh, wait, he only reads two bullet points. How do we fit it all into two bullet points? So the uh, we've talked before about how the the real problem of intelligence is not finding the information, but getting your superiors to accept it and act on it. Is, is always the, uh, the puzzle. So I think we've uh, come from the relatively uh, hard idea of 
that you can gather facts and they matter to a giant morass of, of doubt and uncertainty. And the next question is, how do you put this in an espionage uh, level game? Certainly, it's something that I think that the uh, your vampire enemies in Knights Black Agents would uh, take advantage of. They understand the the weaknesses of the of the human mind and know how little effort it takes on their part to uh, uh, sow confusion and and hide information. And uh, they don't even show up in mirrors or on uh, surveillance cameras. So uh, they, by definition, their mere existence is disinformation. Can you find uh, in uh, just uh, ordinary uh, documents that are about uh, putatively boring things uh, evidence of, of a conspiracy, which will then take you, uh, one hopes rather quickly, from the uh, uh, boring reality of intelligence into the exciting a matter of running away from vampires. I mean, there's a there's a skill in Knights Black Agents that mirrors a real life skill in intelligence work called traffic analysis, and that is the sort of thing that the United States actually got kind of good at in Iraq, where they realized they didn't really need to know who was going where; they just needed to know that a where was being gone to, and they once they started mapping you know, who each person in an Iraqi city was talking to, they could build up a pretty strong uh, informational map of the town and realize, okay, this is the circle around the mosque. This is the circle around the uh, diehard Bathist party guy. This is the circle around this weirdo from the desert and figure out who is in what group. And when you get a lot of people from one group suddenly converging at that mysterious warehouse on the outside of town, even if they don't all do it at once, if they are doing it over and over and over over the course of time, the simple fact of a truck moving, which you can see on a satellite camera, tells you, oh, that warehouse is important to this group. And this group, therefore, uh, if we raid that warehouse and find it full of machine guns and bombs, this group is therefore a trouble group. And we now have to track uh, literally their traffic and that ability to either take satellite information or uh, bills of lading. Obviously, um, this is a big area of how uh, people have tracked smugglers. The time immemorial is to find out where such and such a boat put in at what such and such a time, what cargoes it declared, uh, how long it took. If it took four days to go from a between two ports that are normally two days apart, that tells you something that tells you that in that time, it took a little detour somewhere and you can start looking at that hole in the data and, and uh, parsing it and vampires, they still have to ship their coffins. Robin, the coffins still have to go by, you know, FedEx or DHL or whatever they have in Europe. And there's a check mark that says, leave the coffin outside the warehouse. If it doesn't matter if it's at night, actually that's best if it's at night and you track those, those shipments by that trucking company and you realize, oh, if that trucking company is run by the vampires, we have just found a lot of vampire nesting grounds in the same exact way that once you track onto that truck is driven by an Al-Qaeda guy. Oh, look, we found a lot of places that turn out to be terrorist networks and it's the same technology and you can uh, push that back in history uh, to look at uh, at uh, human networks and say, uh, for example, people have analyzed Paul Revere's correspondence to find out who was members of the Sons of Liberty that maybe were not the public members that there was sort of like in like in the IRA, there's the secret commando and the public rabble rousing politics part. And Paul Revere was very much one of the nodes between those two. Um, the British tried to do that in, in Ireland, but uh, sadly, uh, their plan was to ask members of the IRA and that worked about as well as you'd expect. So you can do that again with uh 
with uh, vampires or with uh, any sort of cultists that you're tracking, Cthulhu cultists, whoever they are. Once you get a, an established person that's such and such a person as a Renfield, track down who they know, track down who they associate with, who does their social media feed to if you can get a tap on, on their phone, or who are they literally walking to go see in the daytime, because that's when the vampires are sending them on their little errands. And you begin to paint a picture of who is in that uh, informational network. And that's just, you know, good old shoe leather work, and you can abstract it in uh, Nice Black Agents to a single a die roll and a two day montage. And uh, after two days of, uh, of, of surveillance, you've assembled uh, a picture that traffic analysis tells you means that the vampire is holed up in that warehouse. And right. And it's, it's information that you require to move through the um, scenario. There isn't even a die roll. It's just, right. Yeah. Here's the information. And so what we're talking about is how you, the GM flavor the exciting information with the knowledge that it took a lot of boring effort to right. get it, but that that boring effort took place largely off stage and makes a cool verisimilitudinous montage. Yes. Uh, so, you know, you just describe the bitterness of the coffee, the, the sleep in your eyes, the furrow of your brow, the uh, ergonomic dysfunctions of sitting in this terrible hotel room chair for two days while you conduct this search. And then you get to the, cool thing where something happens right and the and by sort of i think creating the awareness in the gm that this sort of absolutely obvious absolutely open data can be built up to paint a picture you create an awareness of the gm of the sorts of things that they can then legitimately provide to their players and you want to do, you know, the opening bit where you have to figure out which of these guys is a Renfield. That's a little bit of a fun field activity. And then you want to do the part where you raid the where the vampire warehouse. But the middle bit, again, is that is that montage sequence. And as the GM, you now know what kind of information you can legitimately provide to the agents, to the players, and and what kind of information is available. And you can do that in a you know in a fall of Delta Green game. The presence of a strange uh, militia in Zanzibar during the Zanzibari revolution that talks about, you know, Zanzibar being, you know, the, the perfect black island. And they say that right out in their propaganda. But you, the Delta Green analyst, are like, oh, that's that's Dagon code. Uh, we have to move on that militia. And again, that's that's a standard OSINT type uh, approach to something that is uh, uh, mystical or strange or occult or gameable in some way. Right. Uh, well, uh, on that note, uh, now that we've gathered all the information, we've got an action plan. I believe that action plan is to uh, head through this uh, commercial and see what uh, hot and or segment waits for us on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive-thru. Keep this podcast's paperwork in order by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Andrew Cowie, Anton Kulikov, The Redacted Files Podcast, Carrie Shutrick, and Christopher Hattie. The whir of the projector, the cigarette smoke arcing up through the white beam, the taste of the popcorn, and whatever that is under our feet, welcome us once more to the center aisle, middle seat, downrange from the Cinema Hut. And in the Cinema Hut, we're talking about that greatest challenge of cinema, how to write a script that is not about daddy issues. Robin, (laughs) daddy issues are all over modern film Modern narrative, certainly, but certainly modern film, like a rash. Right. And the question here is not how not to do that, because the answer is don't do that. Don't do Uh, that. But to explore why it is that this has become basically the median story arc in Hollywood cinema. That, That everyone's motivation is to reconnect with their dad or make their dad proud of them or find their dad, something about their dad, live up to their dad, live down to their dad. Betray their dad. Something about their dad. And often you see this now in kind of pop culture properties where it's like, well, how do we do this new version of this? And so how do we do Willy Wonka? Give him daddy issues. Pokemon, give him daddy issues. Well, Pokemon doesn't have daddy issues in the recent Ryan Reynolds uh, Pokemon movie, but the the main human character does. That's the whole thing of that. It's like, Pokemon, is that really about daddy? I mean, the problem with Pokemon is once you try and make it real and photorealistic, it's terrifying and awful. Yeah, right. Which they play around with a little bit anyway. But yeah, why daddy issues? Why Mm. is this uh, so prevalent? And I think there are, I think, broader sociological reasons. And like a lot of conventions, there is also just sort of a, a point where you can look at, oh, this is where everything changed. And I think that this is a convention and not a trope, if I may be allowed to define a couple of other things in that. I don't think that there's a huge necessary demand from the audience to go, well, I sure hope this one is about daddy issues, but rather it is something that there's an expectation that characters in order to have depth have to have an arc in which they change. And over time, that implies they have to have a backstory of, of some sort, some sort of emotional quality to them when you don't really need Willy Wonka to have an emotional quality to him than the Gene Wilder one uh, didn't have. That's not actually necessary or desirable. Not least because Willy Wonka is Satan, who I guess does have daddy issues of a sort. Well, there you go. There, oh, we've invalidated the whole segment. (laughs) Right. Yes. If you are John Milton, you may have daddy issues. If you are not, start again. (laughs) Uh, But clearly there's a demand in pitch meetings to go, well, wow, yeah, but what's the depth of this character? What is the arc? And the thing about daddy issues that of, of all the familial conflicts there can possibly be, it is the one that is the most easily resolved because one thing you may also notice about movies where daddy issues are the story arc is that usually it's just sort of a tearful reunion at the end and a hug. And that's every, like it's so easily wrapped up. Uh, It's like, well, dad doesn't acknowledge me. And then dad acknowledges you. And 
there you go, all taken care of. Uh, if you were to have, uh, for example, mother-daughter issues, yeah, first, first of all, the problem is uh, women are far less likely to be the protagonist. Robin, and, you'd have to cast two women in a part, and f- quite frankly, yeah. we can't do that in a yeah. film. And, of course, once you start looking at that very real, very often very complicated relationship where there's conflicts between mothers and daughters, it's like, oh, that stuff is real. That's the... Uh, that's a hard. So we don't want. We can't resolve that in a movie. No one would believe that. That would make our movie about actual human issues, not about weird candy factories. Yes, because that's not solved with dad just giving you a hug and going to the pub and having a pint together. And so it's something that uh, a variation of another weak uh, structure, which is the get over it movie, which mm-hmm. is the problem is just solved if the lead character just decides to get over it. And in this case, it's just a sort of a minimal amount of input from the other character and then they both get over it right that there's it doesn't require a big catalyst and again the other relationships if there's a conflict uh if it's a male character with mommy issues you uh, never see that because it would possibly bring the character's masculinity into question or suggest that the mother is not just inattentive or cold but is abusive Right. Uh, and therefore, again, not something that seems so charming. It seems more difficult and more like real life and also something that is unrealistic to dispose of uh, in a, uh, a single uh, scene. And also, though, uh, I guess the grand progenitor of this is Luke, I am your father, because I don't think we see a big influx of daddy issues before Star Wars. That's not even in Star Wars. It's. That's Later on in the empire. series, yep. yeah, it's an empire. But those films reshape what the blockbuster is, and they also create that convention that is being replicated again and again. It was very successfully uh, done in the original trilogy, and uh, as always, when uh, Hollywood sees something done well, it's just going to keep on doing that. Yes, and in fairness, it was done well again in Indiana Jones, another film that needed no daddy issues, and then when they decided to make their daddy issues movie, they made the whole movie about it. So, uh, the Holy Grail becomes really a reconciliation between Indy and his father, that the Holy Grail is not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is that emotional change and that emotional arc. And so it functions where, and you can, again, you can go to, you you brought up uh, Willy Wonka and let's talk about Tim Burton. Many of Tim Burton's movies are hideously crippled by the insertion of daddy issues where they do not belong. Willy Wonka being the, you know, star in that uh, firmament. But when he makes a movie that is literally all about daddy issues, big fish, well, what do you know? It works because it's a genuine, the move, the whole point of the movie of all the weird, bizarre nonsense that happens in Big Fish is that he's attempting to rediscover his father and reconnect with him on an emotional, almost spiritual level. And that that drives the story because the movie's literally about that relationship. It's not, well, what could possibly make James Bond so cold and mean? Well, probably his dad was bad. Now yeah, we're done. It's, it's not a bolt on to an existing story or property. Right. Or, you know, why is Iron Man such a, a debauched playboy? Oh, he wasn't loved enough by dead Iron Man. And then we stop Iron Man dead for, you know, what seems like forever in Iron Man 2. And you can sort of spin out of that a little bit because, of course, having already ruined Iron Man 2 and most of Iron Man 3, you can then make his motivation to not be a terrible dad to his daughter something that gives him a level of humanity in the Endgame movies that is refreshing for Tony Stark and is is an actual positive change of the character. But was it worth, you know, shoehorning daddy issues into 
you know, two thirds of the franchise, a question raises our heads. Right. And there's also the broader sociological thing. I think that in lockstep with possibly semi-produced by the dawn of the blockbuster era and the phenomenon by which uh, nerd culture becomes mainstream culture, uh, there is a sort of a cultural infantilization in which people are, are uh, emotional set point is going back to becoming kids who all want the approval of our dads. And I think it goes to the relationship between the boomers and their, uh, and the, the so-called greatest generation, which is being reflected is there was the uh, generation of tough, hard, damaged people who were knocked around by the depression and by uh, world war two and were already raised in uh, what had until then been a, a relatively uh, emotionally constrained uh, world, at least among uh, Anglo's, and uh, therefore uh, the uh, that sort of uh, approval-seeking impulse is being replicated uh, again and again. The boomers started it, and people are much more focused around their parents. They, their uh, parenting is even more concentrated and helicoptery than it ever was, and therefore the uh, need to get parental approval uh, is, I think, accelerated in our culture. And I think that's reflected in uh, the widespread love of uh, fun, childish things and the idea that people, you know, even our age don't think of themselves uh, as adults. And that has a number of, uh, I think, sort of problematic cultural uh, <laughs> knock-on effects. But that's definitely part of the zeitgeist is that yeah. uh, the whole culture wants approval from a daddy who uh, no longer exists or uh, sometimes exists in a horrible cartoon form and uh, wants to run the government. And so, uh, you know, the, the uh, once we psychoanalyze the world and, and it's little uh, swerve toward authoritarianism that we're currently experiencing, I think in a way, much of the world has daddy issues right now and is, and is looking in the wrong place for them to be resolved. There's, um, there's another sociological explanation that um, I forget if it was Javier Grillo Marswatch's uh, brilliant TV showrunner, Javier Grillo Marswatch, I should say. I forget if it was an essay that he wrote or an essay that he pointed uh, the world to, uh, but I read it through him. And it uh, argued that a lot of this comes out of the fact that suddenly we have a generation of screenwriters that are products of divorced households, right? That we have a lot of uh, screenwriters who simultaneously with the infantilization of culture and with the generalized generational conflict, uh, perhaps being starker between the baby boom and their parents, but possibly that's just the baby boom making everything about themselves again. Um, but Absolutely what has happened mathematically is that divorce in America blew up and became a giant thing with the institution of no fault divorce circa 1973. So you have all of a sudden, certainly the odds are much better that a scriptwriter comes out of a house that didn't have a dad. And so that becomes their, you know, rather than psychoanalyze America, let's psychoanalyze the scriptwriter and say that the scriptwriter can't imagine a better ending that it's sort of a, a Larry Sue uh, story. You know, he can't reconcile with his dad, but he can certainly make, you know, Willy Wonka, you know, either lash out pointlessly against his dad, which is another big part of these daddy issue things. But also if it's the sort of movie where, you know, you have the manly hug at the end, 
he can write that manly hug and say, even though I will never get a manly hug, uh, I can at least give a manly hug uh, to James Bond or whoever. Yes. And that Professor X will hug me. Professor X will hug my my stand in the beast. And, and that is a gigantic change in uh, not the culture of script writing, but the culture of everybody. And if you grew up in a an unbroken home, you may notice this prevalence of daddy issues in a way because it, it's like if you walk into a grocery store and suddenly there's a, a whole wall of, of coconut flavored snacks, you don't want coconut. You don't need coconut. You, you have nothing personally against coconut, but you'd really rather there not be coconut Doritos. You just want regular Doritos. So the notion that a nation of uh, or an industry full of uh, script writers from uh, divorced homes is trying to work out their issues. Maybe those things are appealing to some people in the audience who have those same issues. But by and large, uh, if your emotional development requires a uh, a script writer to tack it on for you, we're not done. That's all I'll say. And it must be said uh, that uh, in Canada, the dominant story arc of Canadian cinema uh, and you see this, you know, every year at TIFF when there's new uh, Canadian filmmakers coming around, but they're not necessarily knowing the whole history of it. It is about breaking away from your parents. It is about getting away from the suffocating authority. And it begins with a film uh, called Nobody Wave Goodbye and in the early 60s. And it continues again and again and again. And so it's not about uh, wanting to reunite and gain forgiveness and approval, but to get the heck away from in order to have uh, freedom and autonomy. And it does not take... A, a national psychoanalyst to look at Canada as the uh, country that was in the early 60s trying to uh, further break away from its identity as a colony of Britain and has always been stuck in the orbit of uh, a big brother uh, down to the south to see why that would be the case. So, you know, escaping from Darth Vader once and for all might have been the Canadian version of Star Wars. Yeah, there's, um, I mean, rebelling against your folks Again, apologies to the baby members. They did not invent it. That has been a standard drive. I mean, certainly, could you even imagine the world of romantic Hollywood comedies without one or another of the partners, probably both of them, wanting to shock their stodgy parents with their behavior? I mean, that that goes back to the ancient Greeks, right? That yep. dad doesn't understand. And uh, we just have to be uh, friends and lovers and hilarity will ensue. Yes, the, the uh, forbidding father figure who is the obstacle to the lovers getting married. Uh, Northrop Fry calls that figure the Alazon. And mm -hmm. if Northrop Fry is giving it a name, you know, it goes uh, all the way back. You know, it's the old, old goodness. Yeah. And, you know, separating from your parents and gaining autonomy is a part of life. It's yeah. what everybody has to do eventually. But having daddy issues and hoping to reunite with dad, I think, is very specific to uh, our time. And I don't know whether on a utilitarian basis, because it is such an easy, cheap thing to do and then to set up and then resolve in the course of something that's about something else. I don't know if we're going to ditch that anytime soon, because the examples I'm thinking about that made me uh, want to do this segment are all recent films. So I don't know when we're going to be able to uh, set that aside and move on to something else. But uh, we'll have to see what, uh, what happens and where people go and what happens to the uh, family. But uh, I think uh, I would like to see more uh, breaking away from uh, uh, figures of, of authority uh, personally as we go forward. Well, good-looking rebels with codes of their own. It's not just a thing to be dreamt of in film. It's also, of course, our ruling principle here in the podcast. And one of our codes of our own is when we are plaintively wishing for rebellion, it's probably a good sign that we should go to another hut. 
Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Ken's superiors used to send him back in history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. And this time around, perceptive Patreon backer Chris Camfield says, In 1057, Edward the Exile returned to England but died only a few days after arriving. He might have been a strong English successor to Edward the Confessor, who had no heir. And uh, I'm going to reframe this just a little to say, Ken, is this something that you would prefer to rectify? Is this alternate history that would result in if uh, Edward the Exile became uh, Edward the Homeboy and lived in England for a while? Or is this something that you want to uh, prevent someone else from uh, altering? Um, uh, Edward the Exile, I guess to start it, uh, the reason that he has such a great claim is that he is the son of King Edmund Ironside. He is the legitimate heir. And this is an era when kings had pretty good sobriquets. The, the king nicknaming game was on point. Right. They they had it nailed. And uh, uh, King Knut, who had to be Knut the Great because he didn't have a cool name, when he conquered England, he said, Goodness me, I'm the king of England now. What shall I do with a legitimate heir? I probably can't just murder him because he's a baby, but I can send him to Sweden and have the Swedes murder him. They're horrible. As a Dane, I know this. And uh, good old King Olaf, the uh, king of Sweden, however, is a buddy of Ethelred the Unready, another great name, who was the grandfather of Edward the Exile, and says, I don't want to murder my buddy's grandson. Plus, a king of England could be ha- handy if I ever needed one. So he sends him to Hungary because he figures Knut, being from Denmark, has got spies in the Swedish court and will let him know that there's a bunch of heirs to the throne of England wandering around. So he sends them off to Hungary, which might as well be the other side of the world, as far as anyone is concerned. And in Hungary, Knut finds him, sends guys to try and kill him. And the king of Hungary says, you know what? It turns out there's an even edgier edge of the world. We'll send you to Kiev to be raised by the Russians, um, or barely even Russians at that point. They're still the Kievan Rus. Yeah. And so they 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 go off there. I mean, if if someone's trying to whack you and you need toughening up, uh, send you to the Rus. Send you to the Rus, and that they uh, they do indeed ornament the court. They become uh, beloved figures and warriors. They are uh, basically the English ambassadors to Rus without being so much so formally uh, claimed. But any anyone with a problem with England or a question goes to Edward. He he grows up very responsibly and. He is joined by another exiled prince, this time of Hungary, because it turns out Hungary now has got a guy uh, in charge of it named Peter, uh, who is put in charge by the German emperor. 
and the German emperor put this guy in charge of Hungary. And Peter, it turns out, is a bad dude and is uh, uh, mulcting the people of Hungary. And the exiled Prince Andrew says, let's invade Hungary and take my kingdom. Uh, and uh, maybe you'll get a little practice at invading places and taking kingdoms. Edward says, that's a great idea. Uh, let's do it. So he joins Andrew. Andrew overthrows evil Peter and becomes king of Hungary. And it is at this point that he marries a Hungarian princess. And it is also at this point that Canute has died and he has been succeeded not by another Dane because the Danish empire falls apart with his death, but by Edward the Confessor, who is the guy that is selected by the Wittangamut, the sort of proto-parliament of the Anglo-Saxons, uh, to be king. And Edward the Confessor says, at this point, as you uh, mentioned in the, in the opener, has no heir and is being bullied by two factions, William the Bastard of Normandy, who says, make me your heir, I'll be king of England, and Harold Godwin, who says, uh, make me your heir. I'm vaguely related to the royal family, and I'll be your heir, and I'll be a good Saxon, not like those filth Normans. And Edward the Confessor does not want to make anyone his heir, but then he hears, oh, there's an actual heir. Good old, good old Edward the Exile. He's alive. Uh, let's find him. And he sends a fellow to Germany to ask, have you seen Edward the Exile, Edward Aethling? And the king of the emperor of Germany says, no, I have not. And do not ask me again. Uh, would you like to look at our churches instead? And the guy <laughs> comes back uh, with a bunch of notes on the German church. And Edward the Confessor says, with a nickname like the Confessor, I guess I asked for that. But <laughs> someone needs to go and find him as opposed to just what's church like. And Harold Godwin volunteers and says, oh, I'll go find the heir. I'm Harold Godwin. You can trust me. I'm competent. So they send um, uh, Harold Godwin off. And Harold Godwin uh, realizes that asking the mortal enemy of the new king of Hungary what's going on in Hungary is a terrible idea. Goes into Hungary and gets Edward out. And Edward follows Harold Godwinson back to England and then mysteriously dies two days after landing at Dover. He gets a pimple on his mouth. And he gets a pimple on his mouth, has a synesthetic breakthrough, and dies suddenly, never meeting King Edward the Confessor, uh, who, of course, then picks Harold Godwin and starts the whole brouhaha with the, you know, Norman conquest. So the question is, what happens if Edward the Exile does not mysteriously die while in the company of the man who wants to be king of England, um, but instead goes, meets Edward the Confessor, is confirmed by the Wittangamut, and becomes king of England after Edward the Confessor dies. Then, assuming that the result is a stabilized Anglo-Saxon monarchy, as it very probably would have been, the general outcome is insanely unknowable because England becomes more like a Scandinavian country. It goes to war with Scotland and takes Edinburgh back, uh, so Edinburgh becomes a provincial town in Yorkshire, not the beloved capital of Scotland. They probably still extirpate the Welsh just because they may not have gone so far as to go into Ireland. Ireland is very much a product of the specific Norman aristocracy's need to create new feudal lands to reward um, uh, followers with. The, Sax the Saxons don't practice feudalism in that same way, so they would not need the, the foreign conquests that the Normans did in Ireland. Um, they might have still invaded Ireland because, you know, England and Ireland, they they can't get along. It's, it's sitting right there. It's sitting right there, all green and full of cows. But let's assume probably not, because, again, Scandinavian monarchies tend to sort of hit an expanding point and stop. But the most important thing is that suddenly France 
is alone on the continent. It's the only major West European power. Uh, uh, Spain is still in chunks. Portugal is, is too tiny. Once France centralizes, which it inevitably will do, it becomes a giant unbalanced superpower. At the best, England becomes like Sweden, a brief, uh, or, or, or the Dutch, a brief, uh, roadblock in the way of French continental ambition. But it certainly does not become the globe girdling superpower that it is made by that influx of, uh, Norman feudalism and, uh, William the Conqueror's meanness. So we have an entirely different universe as a result. Uh, the reason that I personally do not and have not been tasked by Time Incorporated to stick my neck out and find out uh, what could possibly have happened to a healthy, noble, just and beloved heir to the throne of England while standing next to a healthy, beloved heir to the throne of England. Possibly armed. Possibly armed. Is because... The biggest change, I think, even bigger than an entirely new Western geopolitics, is no English language, Robin. We're all still talking Beowulf. We got no Shakespeare. We got no Jane Austen. We got no Walt Whitman. We got no no nothing. We don't even have no nothing. It's it, it's a whole new world, right? It is hard to imagine a critical table in Old Norse. Right. I mean, the well, Anglo-Saxon is a, is a fine and dandy language, but it ain't Shakespeare. And, and the English language just looked at as a thing is such a miraculous mutation of Germanic word structure, Latinate grammar, and a whole bunch of uh, loan words beginning, you know, with half of Europe and ending with literally everywhere. To lose it would be a, a crucial, critical, abysmal loss that a slightly more decent 11th century for England is not worth. That's what I would say. Well, uh, it occurs to me that English is the uh, language that this podcast is in. So yeah. it's important for you folks uh, listening to uh, know that not only was uh, this podcast in English, but the one that will drop a week from now will also be in English, not Swedish, in English, not Swedish. Not Anglo-Saxon. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Don't let this podcast go the way of Edward the Exile. Join such regal backers as... Dave Choate. Lionel P. Hatebreak. Timothy Corum. Tony Camp. And Kevin J. Maroney. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Subtweet your players with our latest design. The players are the red herring. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.